I don't actually listen to a lot of music podcasts. I know it's hypocritical, but I often find them infuriating. There's many good ones, but there's one thing that is very, very hard to do, and that's talking interestingly about bands you love. It's really boring listening to someone talking about something they love because there's no analysis, there's no criticism, there's no perspective. Sometimes it's just a couple of guys naming things. It's the same listening to sports podcasts or movie podcasts. If it's just a love fest, it's not a great listen. So how the hell then do I talk about UMI, my favourite band, the band I've spent the most time in my life just naming things that I love about them in pubs and living rooms all over the world? Well, this is the story of UMI in the 90s and how they too fell into the same scene as everyone else and how they fit into that 90s argument of what alternative even is and also how they worked their way up from the small underground indie scene to playing some of the biggest stages in Australia. It wasn't always easy and sometimes it was a fight but along the way they also made some of the most acclaimed music of the decade. But there I go naming things I love again. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week I try to stay objective about my favourite band, UMI. The UMI story starts with Tim Rogers. I often think how much you travel with UMI depends on how much you buy into Tim Rogers. Timothy Adrian Rogers was born in 1969 in Kalgoorlie, Western Australia, a fact usually trotted out by Western Australian newspapers to stake some claim over the success he would have later in the decade. His family moved around a bit to Melbourne and then Sydney, and then he went to uni in Canberra. He was tall, lanky and awkward, but otherwise an average Australian Aussie kid who loved footy and rock music of the time, from Kiss to the less commercial stuff like The Replacements. Ordinary enough. That was until Tim came home from university. For whatever reason, mental and physical it seems, Tim found himself unable to continue his studies in Canberra and moved back in with his parents, who are now living in the outer suburbs of Sydney. With no prospects and a future of flipping pizzas ahead of him, he decided to start a band. That very first lineup of what would be UMI formed in 1989. It featured Tim's brother Jamie on drums and his good friend Nick Tischler on bass. This wasn't like Clouds or The Hummingbirds where there was some modest ambition and auditions to find the right chemistry or a sound or a song to strive for. They weren't formed as a statement of artistic intent. Tim was just trying to make noise and hang out with his brother and best friend. Tim Rogers just wanted to be in a band. Fraternal tensions rose early and Jamie left. Mark Tunnelay joined on drums. Very quickly Tim developed and would stand out from the pack. Maybe it was because of that lack of ambition, because Tim saw no need to hitch himself to any popular bandwagons. As goth and shoegazer movements meant everyone was disappearing up their own ass, Tim just wanted to have fun and would fling himself around on a small pub stage the way millionaires did on stadium stages. The small Sydney indie scene thought it was a bit silly but fun, and it helped that the scene involved bands like Mass Appeals and Box the Jesuit who were also in it for the fun. And maybe that's where it all could have stayed. Tim wrote some early songs like a lot of those bands do. Some interesting riffs and ideas, but recorded, like everyone else, to sound like cheap grunge. They released a couple of EPs on very small indie labels and caught the eye of Todd Wagstaff, who ran Ruart's new indie arm, Ra. They picked up a manager, Kate Stewart, who also worked at the Big Day Out, and a new bass player, Andy Kent, who started as their sound guy. 
1992's Can't Get Started EP was their first release on Ra Records, and it did okay, and it built them an audience. They played the very first Big Day Out in 1992, and then again in 1993. Also on the bill of the Big Day Out that year was Sonic Youth, and a connection was made with Lee Ronaldo, the guitar player in that band. Ronaldo would produce several of UMI's early recordings, and it starts with the 1993 EP Corporalia, which was recorded in Sydney. The cover of the Corporalia EP feels so of the time, this scratchy writing over this distorted image that screams, hey kids, you like grunge? UMI fit in with this growing grunge scene, whatever that means, and they were a three-piece like Nirvana, so of course Triple J gave them a play. They made a film clip for another song, but Triple J did what they do, and they started to play a track of the EP called Cool Hand Luke. So here's UMI's first radio hit, the wonderful Cool Hand Luke from the Corporalia EP, first released in 1993. You can stay if you pay. Ra Records had more modest ambitions compared to Ruart, their parent label, who had signed Ratcat a couple of years earlier and tried to make them the next in excess. But they didn't need the Ra bands to have quick success after expensive investment. They wanted to mine this new Triple J indie scene properly. But they were still willing to invest in bands, but in an indie way. So Lee Ronaldo returned to produce an album for UMI. The band actually flew to Minnesota to record at Pachyderm Studios. The band who was there for the session before them in that studio had left some stuff behind. And that band was Nirvana, who had been in there recording their third album, In Utero. The album the band made in Minnesota became Sound As Ever. The title is a reference to Graham Parsons, who would sign off his letters with that phrase. It was released in Australia in 1993 on Ra Records. On it was a song called Berlin Chair. No one thought it would be the single, but it would be the song that really broke UMI in the alternative scene. The chair of the title was a sculpture that Tim once saw in Canberra, and that chair is actually still in the National Gallery of Canberra to this day. It was the song about mid-century Dutch design aesthetics that young Australia was waiting for. I remember clearly telling a friend once, years after UMI were my favourite band, that Berlin chair was okay, but it didn't really compare to their more sophisticated later stuff. Her response, which I will always remember, was simply, but it's a ball terror, Danny. And it is. Here's Berlin Chair by UMI. It's a ball terror.
Berlin Chair managed to get to number 73 in the ARIA charts and number 32 in the Hottest 100 of 1994. Berlin Chair is the only UMI song to make the Triple J Hottest 100 all-time lists. And for some people, that song is all they really know about UMI. But Berlin Chair was just one of many standout tracks on that debut album. The surprise was that it wasn't just an album of big riffs. Sure, there were some rockers like Adam's Ribs and the title track, but those were the ones that sound the most dated today. It was the elements of pop and acoustic ballads that was creeping in that showed that there was more to this band than the grunge riffs. Tender moments like Ordinary or the pop joy of Trainspotting feel very different to what else was around. Another single was Jamie's Got a Girl, a song written for Tim's brother. It showed a very different side of the band. Jamie's Got a Girl made it to number 77 in the Hottest 100. Here's Jamie's Got a Girl by UMI. Sound as ever only charted at number 61, but it won the band an ARIA award for best alternative release. In the hunt for Australia's Nirvana, UMI were being lauded as the next big thing. So UMI hit the road. It's what Australian alternative bands did. Ra was distributed by Warner in Australia, who tapped them into their US label. UMI flew around the world playing with bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Around this time, drummer Mark left and Russell Hopkinson joined. Everyone called him Rusty, and he was also from WA, having played in many punk bands. He was also an avid record collector, and his knowledge of music history would play a big influence on Tim. He had more swing and groove than your usual grunge drummers. He had power, but he also had style. The thing that critics said about Sound As Ever was the quality of the songwriting. And Tim hadn't really seen himself as a songwriter at this point, but thought that maybe he should lean into it and try and write better songs. But also, with Rusty on board, UMI started to become a band with more soul and groove. The resulting songs weren't very much like grunge. Some were more pop, some were slower, and they started adding keyboards to their sound. Lyrically, Tim continued what he started with Jamie's Got A Girl by tapping into something more personal. He tapped into his teenage rock dreams, his fear of living a life flipping pizzas in the suburbs, and the fun of playing in a band. But elsewhere, he was writing character songs, like one about a weightlifter and a librarian. Recorded in just under two weeks in New York, again with Sonic Youth's Lee Ronaldo, their second album was called Hi-Fi Way. The first single was that song about the weightlifter. Here's Kathy's Clown by UMI.
sound as ever was designed for bopping your head back and forth. Hi-Fi Way was designed for bopping your head from side to side and bring your hips as well. Despite the production by Sonic Youth's Lee Ronaldo, it felt more like a pop record. I discovered UMI before I discovered Sonic Youth. I only knew that the producer of this wonderful pop rock record was in a band called Sonic Youth. I figured he must make albums with songs that sound just the same. And trust me, Sonic Youth did not sound the same. There was also something ever so retro about Hi-Fi Way. The record has nods to bands like The Who, The Kinks and The Beatles. It was played up on the record cover, which had a very retro design where the song names were listed on the front. The album actually fits better with the burgeoning Britpop scene in the UK than the US grunge scene. It was full of big melodies and fun guitar rock. But like how Sound As Ever was defined by both the rockers and the ballads, so too did Hi-Fi Way have quieter and slower moments. The ballad Grey was about Tim's friend Stephen Goose Grey of the band Boxer Jesuit, who died when the band was in the US and Tim was unable to say goodbye. The album closer, How Much Is Enough, has become a sing-along anthem and often a set closer. Purple Sneakers, the third and most successful single from the album, was about a high school incident where Tim wore shoes that were vaguely pink and was teased about it. It is one of their best songs. Here's Purple Sneakers by UMI. Had a scratch on the good itch Underneath the Claypoint Bridge And now every boy in a knitted vest Has got some precedent So he took a personality pill And something red to swill And now every fire has gone out And every heart that wanted to When I talk about this whole alternative rock thing and what it means, the answer is many answers. Sometimes it's a business thing, sometimes it's a new sound, sometimes it's an attitude, a reaction and doing something different. But sometimes alternative is just a perspective, a story from a different alternative point of view, a view from the outside. Purple Sneakers comes at it from the outside. It's a song for the weirdos, the kids struggling to fit in out of step with what is going on. Pop's Wonderful Common People is probably the greatest song about outsiders ever written, and it was released in the middle of the 90s, capturing that clash between alternative and mainstream. Purple Sneakers, for me, does the same thing, but in a more personal and intimate way. If we are trying to work out what the hell this all means, that outsider feeling of Purple Sneakers is definitely a part of it. And it's echoed on many of the tracks on Hi-Fi Way, in particular, the album closer, How Much Is Enough. Hi-Fi Way is an album for the alternative, left-of-center weirdo kids. 
After the band made the album, Tim apparently had a crash of confidence. Had they made the wrong kind of record? This definitely wasn't a big rock record. It didn't sound like Soundgarden or Pearl Jam or the bands that they'd been touring with. Of course, Hi-Fi Way did great. And it is great mainly because it isn't the fish of the day and instead something more timeless. Hi-Fi Way managed to tap into this new young Triple J audience. As Triple J expanded across the country, they reached more suburban teens with rock and roll dreams, discovering this world of alternative. Tim wrote about their world, because a few years earlier, he was that teenager. Hi-Fi Way debuted at number one on the regular mainstream ARIA charts. It was nominated for five ARIAs that year, winning one Best Alternative Release. It was hailed as an instant classic and loved by the critics. Three songs charted in the Triple J Hottest 100 of 1995, with Purple Sneakers being the highest at number 24. Hi-Fi Way often makes the top end of the best ever Australian album lists. You'll, of course, get no argument from me. In fact, the only argument about Hi-Fi Way, the one that seems to continue to this day, and the argument that is happening right now in an inner city pub near you, is what is better, Hi-Fi Way or the album they made next, Ali Daily. An intense schedule of touring followed the release of Hi-Fi Way. They played all around Australia, Europe and the US, including being part of the 1996 Lollapalooza Festival. During all that touring, Tim started to miss home. That feeling of missing home made its way into his next batch of songs. And soon the band returned to Australia and decided to record these songs about Australia in Australia. Wayne Connolly of The Welcome Mat and Knievel, who had produced a few of the tracks on Hi-Fi Way, produced a new album. No more Sonic Youth members or American Studios. The album they made was called Hourly Daily, and it is all about Sydney and Australia. The songs are set over the course of one Australian day. Tim saw it as a bit like Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood, a play that is set in one town over a day where we drift from character to character. So too did Hourly Daily. It takes us over Sydney, with you and I guiding us through stories of lonely secretaries, arrogant taxi drivers, awkward teenagers, and the ladies who make tea cakes for the council's war machine. The first single was Soldiers. It's a big-hearted song with Tim painting images of a city going happily mad while someone falls in love with someone else. Here's you and I with Soldiers. Round the corner every morning just to see who gets across. album came with a new look. The band started wearing vintage suits, not unlike ones worn by bands like the Kinks and other mod bands of the 60s. If there was a hint of retro in Hi-Fi Way, then it was the main flavour of Hourly Daily. Tim also started to favour a custom guitar created by Sydney guitar maker Piers Crocker called a Crockenbacker, and it was based on a Rickenbacker, a guitar favoured by the Beatles and the Birds. However, that album cover wasn't retro. It was just a rooftop of houses in Sydney's inner west. It's supposed to be Glebe somewhere, but sadly, the exact location has been lost. But it's an image of a Sydney suburban skyline 
that reflects the Australianness inside. Ali Daly saw the band really pushing what they can do. This wasn't a tight, road-tested band running through their latest live set. This was an album made as an album, with some tracks that would almost never be played live. There's lots of keyboards, trumpets and multiple guitars at the same time. The album opens with a string section over some acoustic guitar. It leads into this tender ballad called Hourly Daily, a song about a mother staying up, waiting and worried that her young son has turned into some sort of skinhead. It was a big departure, and this time it definitely didn't sound like the bands that they toured with. Here's Hourly Daily by UMI. There were of course big rock songs too, but they definitely weren't grunge. Good Morning was the big single, and a real showcase for what UMI would do for the next several albums. Rock songs with a lot of swing and a lot of beat. Here's UMI with Good Morning. was developing. Two classic albums were written, recorded and released in 18 months. And in Australia, with a small population and a big land size, it was rare for bands to make a studio album first. Usually what is great about our bands is how well they can play live, and that's what they put on record. Ali Daly, amongst all the other plaudits, is an album of ambition. They didn't just smash out another hi-fi way. The band launched the album with a legendary seven-show run at Sydney's Metro Theatre before going straight into the ARIA Awards. They had looked into playing the Sydney Entertainment Centre, one of the biggest menus in Sydney, but instead they did seven shows on their home turf, including an all-age show on the Sunday. That year, the band sweeped the ARIAs with a massive nine nominations, and they won six, including Best Album and Best Group. In November of 1996, the band played to the biggest crowd of their career, and one of the biggest crowds ever in Australia for music when they supported Crowded House on their Farewell to the World show on the steps of Sydney Opera House. They played to apparently 250,000 people. They were my favourite band in the world at this point and there is a wonderful feeling when you think your favourite band had arrived. Seeing you and I perform on the Opera House steps and everyone cheering, I just thought it proved how big they could be. 
There is this joy in the months that follows a band that you love releasing a new album. That joy has no name, but that was the last six months of 1996 for me. Right after that Farewell to the World concert, the band left for America. More long tours, more time away from home, and despite the success so far, there was still a lot of work to do. Hi-Fi Way and Ali Daly, 1995 and 1996, are considered breakthrough years for the band. Number one albums, lots of ARIA awards, all that acclaim. But there was another kind of success in the mid-90s, and that was this idea of crossing over. Crossing over from Triple J and the alternative scene into the mainstream. Having earned your dues, you get your reward. And your reward is a big hit. The Cruel Sea had done it. Silverchair had done it. Heck, weddings, parties, anything had done it. You and I hadn't done it. Even being the best group in the country according to the Arias and playing that huge crowd with Crowded House, commercial radio still didn't embrace UMI. And after several overseas tours, it also didn't feel like they were making much headway overseas. A version of Sound As Ever, remixed by an American producer, didn't go anywhere. Hi-Fi Way was released in the US, but failed to make it big. They did okay for a hard-working guitar band, and they were winning over audiences when they came. But this couldn't go on forever. Internationally and at home, what their labels thought they needed was a hit. Warner in the US started to second-guess the Ali Daily album. They had spent years trying to set up UMI as this energetic rock band, and they gave them an album that opened with a string-laden acoustic ballad. They asked the band to remove the song from the US version of the album, but they said no. The band were willing to record more songs instead. They recorded Trike and Opportunities, added to the US version of Ali Daily. They also changed the album cover to a photo of the band, not an Australian skyline. But Trike wasn't the big single to break America either, although it is wonderful. It was released on an EP in Australia to keep fans interested back home. Here's Trike by UMI. Ali Daly didn't break the band internationally, but everyone felt that the breakthrough was just around the corner. On UMI's next album, they would play the game for the American label in a big way. Firstly, they recorded in a big, expensive American studio. Oceanway Studios in Los Angeles wasn't where cool bands like Nirvana recorded. It was where Sinatra and the Beach Boys recorded. It was a top-of-the-line studio with those big wooden rooms and high ceilings. It was an expensive place to record. They worked with a big producer in George Draculius. He had produced bands like Primal Scream and The Black Crows and worked for many years with Rick Rubin. He knew how to make good live bands sound great on record. This wasn't a mate that they knew that was in a cool band. This producer was going to be in charge. And the production didn't go well. Draculius didn't like Tim singing. He didn't like the songs. And with expensive studio time ticking away, It was a high-cost and high-pressure situation. The album they eventually came away with was called UMI's Number 4 Record. The title is a nod to the band Big Star, whose first album was called Number 1 Record. It was a bit of a self-effacing album name. 
The first single from the album was called What I Don't Know About You, a very poppy and a very wordy song. Here's What I Don't Know About You by UMI. I love the song, but Australian radio didn't. As much as people loved UMI and would always give them a chance, for some reason radio stations didn't like this one. Even Triple J didn't like it, although George Triculius thought it would work. If What I Don't Know About You was designed to be the big single for America as well, surely the film clip didn't help. The film clip was an Australian star-studded affair, featuring the band as well as prominent Australian actors like Stephen Curry, Matt Day, Nadine Garner, Tanya Lacey and Ben Mendelsohn. It was a remake of the Australian film Don's Party. It's a fun song and a fun clip, but it wasn't really made for American airplay. What I Don't Know About You charted at number 28, which would actually be a career high for the band. But the band spiked it and quickly put out another song to radio. Second single Rumble was more aligned with what people expected and more like the rest of the record. Number 4 record wasn't as varied and expansive as Ali Daily. It was a lean soul rock album with songs that UMI had honed on the road. In fact, more than a couple of the songs were about being on the road and being in a touring band, such as The Cream and the Croc, which was originally called Don Henley, and Guys Girls Guitars. It was a party record. Here's UMI with Rumble. single from the album that connected with a wider audience. An odd little ballad called Heavy Heart. Here's UMI with Heavy Heart. Been watching so much TV I'm thinner than I should be I'm like a waterlogged ball No one wants to kick around anymore 
The song didn't always have that bongo drum beat, and was written as a straight country song. And heavy heart has all the elements that makes country music ballads great. There's a sharpness in the detail of the lyrics, that wonderful mix of regret and wisdom, and a gentle melody that can make a grown man cry. It's also a songwriter's song. It's one that makes you wonder who is singing this. And around this time, the story of you and I wasn't three young guys in a hot indie rock band anymore. It was more about Tim, this charismatic frontman with stories to tell. Number four record debuted at number one in Australia, but it failed to match the sales of Ali Daily. Heavy Heart made it to number nine in the hottest 100 of 1998, a career best. They still didn't cross over in Australia or America. The American label, having spent all that money, didn't care in the end either. They dropped the band shortly after. Why didn't you and I cross over? Why didn't they have the mainstream success? Were they too weird for commercial radio? It doesn't make sense if you go through it. The songs could be a bit wordy and peculiar, but so was every REM song. Was it all too Australian? There was possibly a bit of that. Silverchair and others, they might have been Australian bands, but they didn't sing about Australian things. But when Tim was asked this once in an interview, his reply was, it's not like every song is about Dubbo. And Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil and other bands wrote about Australia and did fine. A lot has been made about Tim Rogers' voice. It's beautiful and of course I love it, but it's not a traditional big rock voice like the ones that Liam Gallagher or Bernard Fanning had. Plenty of people said the commercial radio just decided that they didn't like Tim's voice and that was that. But that sounds like one person's view and doesn't explain the pattern of radio stations everywhere. And Tim was a star. He's great in interviews and with people. He is a selling point. And let's face it, he's tall, artistic, it has those deep eyes. Just ask a lot of women that I can introduce you to. And he doesn't get the credit for being incredibly charming and incredibly funny as well. And Tim, rightly so, did more interviews by himself at this time. And it's because most of the journos wanted to talk to him. He also dabbled in acting. He appeared in a small speaking role in the film Holy Smoke, which starred Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel, which was filmed in Australia and was directed by Jane Campion. Tim Rogers was a star, and people wanted to put that star power on film. Just for some reason, commercial radio didn't want to put him on commercial radio. The only real reason I can think of about why you and I didn't cross over, whatever the hell that means, is that it's not actually about what goes wrong, it's about what goes right. Triple M didn't like Tim's voice? Well, in the end they pretty much only liked Powderfinger and nothing else. And there are much catchier, more straight ahead songs with less lyrics that aren't smash hits either. If there was an easy answer to the question of why a band like you and I didn't cross over, we would have solved all the problems of pop music by now and there would never be an unpopular song again. Still, after half a decade of being in UMI, the band needed a break. Tim's personal life was in an upheaval as well. He broke up with his partner of all through these fame years, Tracy, who was the subject of What I Don't Know About You. 
Heartbroken and exhausted, Tim moved away from Sydney, the city he wrote so lovingly about on his most successful album. He moved to Melbourne, where he didn't really know anyone, but some band people that he kind of knew from around, but not actual friends. He moved into a small flat on his own, and he wrote a bunch of songs in that flat, and then he started to get out of that flat and make some musical connections. The most important was Jen Anderson of the recently broken up Weddings, Parties, Anything. Tim asked Jen to get some friends together to record some of his new songs. And what they made was a gentle, sweet album about a man dealing with heartbreak but trying to move forward. Tim would release it under his own name, with his new friends being dubbed The Twin Set. And because it was kind of a solo album, he could use the album name that he wanted for number 4 record, but no one else agreed with him on. He called the album What Rhymes with Cars and Girls. Here's the first single from Tim Rogers and the Twin Set from the 1999 album What Rhymes with Cars and Girls. It's I Left My Heart All Over the Place. So I was talking with my friend over a glass of four. She said it just don't seem like holding hands means anything anymore. Well, I'm here to say that it just couldn't be true. Cause something shifts the floor every time I get on next to you. What Rhymes With Cars and Girls is a much-loved record, and it's easy to love. It's so rich with detail and honesty. The side of Tim's songwriting that was revealed in Heavy Heart really shines on this album. The sound of the album is equally intimate. It sounds like friends having a jam, and it often was. What Rhymes With Cars and Girls charted at number 14, but it was otherwise a sweet aside. Soon it was time to return to UMI, who had unfinished business. But first, UMI had a lineup change. Back in 1996, when they had made Ali Daly, the band was joined by a fourth member, Greg Hitchcock. Greg was from Perth and had played in bands with Rusty. He was in the red-eye band The Verries, who had just broken up. But he left UMI and played with artists like Tim Finn and also Brad Shepard, the guitar player of Hoodoo Gurus. He never really joined UMI officially. Then, on the tour with the Twinset album, Tim needed an extra guitar player again. He didn't know any existing expert guitarist in Melbourne that closely, especially not one that was available. But he also met an 18-year-old fan who was a stunning guitarist and they kept in touch. So Tim asked Davey Lane to come and play guitar and have some fun. I have a lot to say about Davey Lane, and I will. But for now, he fit in with what Tim was doing. He was also in Melbourne and a sounding board for Tim when Andy and Rusty remained in Sydney and he had the most important element that people look for when they need someone to join their band. He was a good person and someone people were happy to spend long hours on tour with. 
Davies started as a replacement for Greg in some shows. Tim and the band just wanted that second guitarist and occasional keyboard player back for the UMI Live experience. A couple of those shows were recorded for the live album, Saturday Night Round 10, but they had new songs too and Davey wrote parts. For many people, it was a surprise that he joined the band. But ever since Ali Daly, the band was pushing against the limits of a three-piece. And with a fourth member, they could make whatever kind of record they wanted. And once again, they wanted to make something ambitious. By now, UMI's label, Ra Records, had been sold to the major label, BMG. When number four record failed to be a hit, BMG helped the band seal a new deal with a US BMG label called RCA. It seemed like a cool fit, because the label had rock bands like Foo Fighters, and they certainly thought that UMI could follow that road. They also had success with Australians, having turned Natalie Imbruglia into a worldwide pop star with Torn. Again, UMI tried to play the game by established rules. They recorded demos and did sessions with some producers that came to nothing. They ultimately made the album in Sydney with producer Cliff Norrell, who had worked on albums by Weezer, No Doubt, Faith No More, Henry Rollins, R.E.M., and other bands that sounded good on American radio. But again, the label started to doubt the band. They asked for more songs, and so the band wrote and recorded more. They gave the label what they asked for. The album they made was called Dress Me Slowly, and it was released in 2001. The song Damage was the lead single. For Ali Daly, UMI's American label wanted to remove the string-laden ballad that opened the album. Now, a string-laden ballad was the first single. Here's Damage by UMI. I woke up with the war in my head An old man scrambled And an extra space in the bed And old John Pine Sing the next line About something that can make me smile Damage is beautiful, but it wasn't what fans expected. And that was probably the point. People had kind of made their minds up about UMI, and the label thought that they had to challenge expectations. But it wasn't a hit. It charted modestly at number 37 in the ARIA charts, although it was number 23 in the Hottest 100 of 2000. The title of the album, Dress Me Slowly, came from Tim's new wife. It's a Spanish saying, which when translated is, I'm in a hurry, so dress me slowly. You know, when life moves fast, rebel, and move slowly, take your time. But in a sign of how the album got mangled and twisted along the way, the song that featured the lyric Dress Me Slowly, a lovely ballad called Open All Night, wasn't even on the album. In terms of artwork and photos of the band, everything was about making them a manicured rock band, not a retro one. The label really wanted them to be like the Foo Fighters or Goo Goo Dolls, a real modern band. Basically, all around the band, everyone was telling them to be someone else. The funny thing about Dress Me Slowly is that on the surface it was a weird and fractured album to make, but the band were in a good place and the songs were great. 
Tim had hit a rich vein of songwriting, and when the label wanted more songs, he wrote a bunch of crackers. The songs that Tim wrote when asked included classics like Get Up and Kick a Hole in the Sky that had been setlist staples ever since. Here's the big hit that should have been. It's You Am I with Get Up. I got a kiss on the neck from morning cartoon I'm pulling out the knot I just can't lose I'm grabbing my shoulder Turn out the night In many ways, Dress Me Slowly is the follow-up to Ali Daly that some people wanted but didn't get with the straight, simpler rock of number four record. Dress Me Slowly had all the complicated songs with lots of chords, lots of lyrics, and lots of detail. It was helped by Davey, who brought incredible and fresh guitar parts to everything. Tim was also newly in love and got married around this time. And he became a father too. The affection is in the songs. Although that marriage wouldn't last, there is a wonderful romantic feeling in the best songs on here. You can hear it on songs like Weeds, Sugar, and my favourite on the album, Beautiful Girl. For me, I thought this would be the album that would break them big. I kind of get why Number 4 Record lost people, because it was so retro, and so many of the songs were about being in a band. But Dress Me Slowly is probably UMI's most romantic album, and has a fun spirit throughout. And it sounded great next to U2 and the Foo Fighters, on the small time that commercial radio played them. But despite all the work and all the sessions and all the new songs, commercial radio still didn't care. Dress Me Slowly debuted at number three, breaking their run of number one albums. It did fine, but ultimately failed to break them internationally once again. That RCA deal came to nothing. Having been told what to do and what to be for so long, the band gave up trying to get that big overseas hit after that. They had found a small international fan base from their years of touring and would work with US indie labels like Spin Art and Yep Rock. But that's actually what the next decade was all about. It was the rise of this new kind of indie label. Bands like The Shins and Arcade Fire would lead an indie renaissance, and UMI would find themselves at that level with less pressure. But that's the story for another podcast. There's been more UMI albums and more Tim Rogers solo albums. Musically, they also decided not to listen to anyone else anymore. Far from challenging expectations with songs like Damage, the band embraced who they were, and they weren't a manicured modern rock band. They were a wild, timeless rock band. I think for me, as the 90s closed and the madness of Dress Me Slowly passed, the thing I find most interesting was that UMI didn't break up. If anything, I saw them enjoying being a band more than ever. Whereas other big bands like Silverchair, Spiderbait and Powderfinger all, at some point, broke up. The years of hard touring, record company interference, and the level of success that was expected killed a lot of bands. But for UMI, the things that they went through didn't kill them. They survived. Because at the end of the day, Tim Rogers just wanted to be in a band. UMI's story is very much tied to what happened in the 90s. In fact, they lived the 90s pretty much end to end and lived it better than anyone else. 
From small indie EPs to the rise of Triple J, playing the big day out, alternative going mainstream, Channel V, Recovery, Home Bake and all that. And then towards the end of the decade, in a preview of what the next couple of seasons of this podcast is going to be about, they got caught up in the big crossover. When the business had had enough of this alternative stuff, and it was time to get on commercial radio or die trying. They did it all, good and bad. And they worked so hard during that time, releasing an album or an EP pretty much every year from 1992 on. Oh yeah, and the 200 and 300 shows a year all over the world and huge support with Soundgarden, Oasis, Crowded House and many more. And as great as the nights were that they gave to many people, for me, it's the records. Time and time again, Tim and the band just managed to capture what was happening. You can chart the sound of Australia in the 90s through their discography. Big Riff's second-gen grunge goes to Britpop-like nostalgia for rock and roll dreams, then a celebration of Australianness followed by an attempt to sound like American radio. All those albums in the 90s are rightly considered some of the best music to come out of Australia, and they were all quite different too. Rightly so, the band did classic album shows of Hi-Fi Away and Ali Daly in 2013, and it was recorded for a live album. The lack of huge mainstream success, sure, that hangs over them. Mathematically, You or Mine never had a hit. You can say that they had lots of Triple J Hottest 100 songs, and that those key albums are often high up on great Australian album lists, sure. But where's the metric for bands that make other people want to be in bands? Because You or Mine have that in spades. It's the thing about You or Mine that I can't show you with chart figures or Hottest 100 placings. You or Mine made it look like being in a band was the most fun thing in the world. And I think that's what makes You or Mine a great band. I think of other great bands from the 90s and beyond, and it was more than the music. There was a world. Their fans figured out a way to speak and a way to dress. Other bands that you had to be into. Books that you had to read. There were secrets for fans in the liner notes. All that stuff that elevates bands like The Beatles, U2, R.E.M., Oasis, Blur, UMI did that. They created a world built on just the silly love of rock bands and wanting to be in one yourself. All that retro stuff or the loose rock band stuff that some labels wanted UMI to play down or take away, that was the whole point. That's what made listeners into fans. A lot of bands can write good songs, but not many of them can create a world. I still have lots more to say about UMI in upcoming episodes, but sometimes I think how lucky I was to have them as my favourite band. I find it crazy that there's no UMI book. There's no UMI podcast. They are so beloved, and the story is so epic, and at the heart of it is Tim, wonderful, charming, talented, and funny Timothy Adrian Rogers. Someone just make the doco already. If you got this far and you still need a place to start, then the best of called The Cream and the Croc is pretty great. As a fan, I forget sometimes how good a singles band they are. So what's the UMI song to end with? Well, if I had to choose a favourite UMI song, it's one from Ali Daly that is very much about Sydney. It's about a young couple saving up for a flat in the inner west and trying to make it. Here's UMI with If We Can't Get It Together. To get up the bond for an inner west flat It worked for anybody if it wasn't working for a dad She's practicing saying I do or I will Cause she don't know how to tell what she's going off the pill My curtains at the southern night He'll talk about her ass While she clings to his photo like a piece of broken glass We can't get it together today She's looking for his heart while he stares the other way He's 
evening. Okay, you've made it to the end bit. This is where I do the stuff about support and other things about Just Ace. Every week I highlight something different. Let's talk about the Patreon. If you've not heard about it, Patreon is a bit like a subscription service. They've gotten really complicated over the years, but I'm only offering one tier of support, and it's $3 a month. The tier gets you an ebook and my eternal gratitude. But that's mainly kind of it. I'm keeping it simple, and it's about the support. I'm totally open to Patreon ideas, though, so if you're a patron and you think there's something that I can do, please let me know. Otherwise, your support goes to just keeping the podcast going, the hosting, some software, and keeping it all ad-free. It's only $36 a year when you add it all up. The upcoming vinyl reissue of Metallica's and Justice For All costs more than three times as much. This podcast only has two more seasons in it. It will cost you less than that double vinyl to support this podcast to the end. If you don't want the commitment but can afford to support me, check out Buy Me A Coffee. There's also stuff that you can buy on Redbubble. There's no cost ways to support me as well, such as leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing the post online, following me on social media, and telling a friend. There's also a website with show notes and playlists and mailing lists. There's lots of links in the description below, and the username is always JustAce90s, which is JustAce90s. Okay, next week, we do our regular wrap-up of the year, and we look at bands from 1994.